0: Hey, Derek, thanks for joining us today. It's great to see you. I think we first got connected a good few years ago. I think you did an article on Field Trip. Was that that the impetus? Do you recall? I was trying to go back through my notes being like, I've been following you for a while. And then I think you did an article on Big Think. But I was like, I don't know why we got connected. But I think that's what it was. Is that...
1: That's kind of... it. I believe I got a press release when you were opening the first psilocybin search center in Jamaica. Oh, yeah. And then I right. requested an interview, and that was the first article I wrote on Field Trip.
0: Okay. Well, I'm glad your memory is better than mine. Um, <laughs> but it it looks, comes and goes. Look.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, fair, fair enough. Certainly, my, my memory has struggled since I, I left. It was actually really interesting after leaving Field Trip, even though there's a massive stress relief associated with it. I, Crashed into a crazy brain fog, which I think is probably just the the stress unwinding itself. It seems to be getting better now, but uh, well, but, I actually
1: uh, lost my second full time job this year yesterday. Working oh in tech, working in tech and media, there is just a perpetual cycle of layoffs, and so for the second time, I was involved in a mass layoff at a company. So, you know, I still have the podcast and I have contract and freelance work, but I'm with you sort of in that brain fog of expectations and then figuring out what that next step is. And when you work in these fields, especially if they're tech related or media related, it seems to be like a constant revolving door.
0: Yeah. No, no kidding. What, what were you doing and, and uh, what happened? I mean, obviously you got laid off, but yeah.
1: Well, I was a staff writer at Freethink Media, which is the company that bought Big Think a few years ago. And then when I was at my last company, which was a fintech company, they had a round of layoffs. And then I saw an open position as a staff writer at Freethink, which I think is a wonderful company, but it seems like they were a bit too ambitious and trying to scale too quickly. And so I had to pull back when the revenue wasn't there from what I understand.
0: That sounds like a lot of online media companies these days. It, it really, it, you know, it actually is a good feed into, uh, you know, the conversation. Uh, so uh, I remember reading a book. It was, it had to be about 10 years ago and I never remember it. It was either called uh, Fear uh, or Risk. I think it was called Risk, Why We Fear the Things We Shouldn't and Put Ourselves in Greater Risk uh, is, I think was the title. And it was all about how the defunding of media with the commoditization of information has resulted in so much of the news we consume just being You know, repurposed press releases without much thought. So you have these organizations, even well-meaning organizations like the Cancer Society is coming out and throwing around these crazy statistics like so many people are getting cancer and we should fund cancer research. And then the author looked into it and it's like, yes, more people are getting cancer, but it's also because we're living way longer. Cancer is a disease of the old. The fact that so many people are getting cancer is not actually an indication of illness in our society. It's actually a, a sign of success and health in our society. And it really screws with what people believe in, and understand. And I think probably a lot of what's happening with conspirituality at least has a foundation in the absence of a robust and healthy journalism industry. And before you comment on that, because I do want to get your comment on that, uh, tell us a what is conspirituality? Um, because I think you provide a very clear definition in the book. Um but I think it's important to just lay it out here to understand exactly what you're talking about and also what inspired you to write it because I think the background and information and story for the impetus for it is is really important to this conversation.
1: The term first surfaced in 2008 where, when a rap group in Canada assumed the name Conspirituality, but it was codified academically in 2011 by Charlotte Ward and David Voss in a research paper that was identifying a common trend in society where you find, I'm creating a heuristic here, I mean, I didn't create it, but the horseshoe theory, which is the idea that when you go to the extremes of left-wing and right-wing politics, you'll meet somewhere that it looks very similar. Not everyone agrees with that. One of my co-hosts, Matthew, doesn't agree with that, but I do believe that is actually what, what happens. and it was identifying how the new age wellness spiritual communities were meeting up with the far-right libertarian and conspiratorial political side of things in in society so an example that's easy to mind is when the hippies and the john birchers were both against fluoride in the 60s Uh, so and it usually happens during times of cultural distress. So it's always there, but world post-World War II, you see signs of it, or actually during the Depression, you see signs of it. You see it during the late 60s. And then obviously with a pandemic that shut down society, that's when we decided to start the podcast. And there was a pseudo-documentary film. I'll, I'll call it a propaganda film because I believe that's what it is, pandemic, which was created by somebody in the circles I used to run with in Los Angeles when I lived there. And when that film came out, I knew that it was gonna be a problem because I had been writing about the anti-vax movement for a number of years. And given the circumstances where there wasn't even a COVID vaccine in sight, but then you, ha- you had this new virus and then you knew that that was going to be down the pipeline, I wanted to get ahead of it and start identifying the trends and the sort of paranoia that's created in that community. And so I reached out to Matthew Remsky and Julian Walker, my co-hosts, and they came onto my podcast called Earthrise at the time. We had two rounds on my podcast. And then I said, Hey, why don't we why don't we take this idea called conspirituality, which no one had taken as a name because the academic yeah. paper was just kind of lying there and let's go with it. And I believe because of our positions in the wellness community as longtime skeptics, but also fans of many of the practices, we had our own small followings. And then when that came together and the fact that no one can leave their apartments or their houses, it kind of created this this movement for us in terms of having people start to think critically about some of the topics we were talking about. So that was sort of the, the origin story. And then All three of us being writers, two of us professionally, a book was always planned once we actually got traction, and we were approached by an agent. Uh, We sold the book to two different houses, and then that's how the book came about.
0: Cool. Thank you for the background. Um, Just so it's kind of entirely clear, um, and it may not make it into the edit, but I'm going to say it anyway just before we started kind of the formal conversation for the podcast I was sharing with Derek that... Part of my interest, besides having followed Derek for a couple of years now, when we met a few years ago, when he wrote an article on Field Trip in the work around spirituality is because the journey I'm going through right now is very much a partially professional, but very much a spiritual journey as well. And I thought it was going to be important to also bring a critical lens uh, to any conversation around spirituality, because it's easy to lose connection from reality. And I think we see a lot of that in, in, in many of the things that come up in in Derek and Matthew and Julian's book called Conspirituality. A um, couple of questions. One is, uh, you know, whenever someone takes a, I'll say this as a bold in, in this global conversation, taking a position on something like Conspirituality, like you have, uh, anytime someone does that, you always have to question, um, the impetus for it. And, and it's really interesting because of the study uh, that was kind of the foundational academic work uh, by Charlotte Ward has an interesting story, but your backgrounds, each of you had your own personal interest in this subject as well. So either one talk about Charlotte Ward or your background, because I think that's really foundational to a lot of what we're talking about here.
1: What was so interesting, and we didn't know this until over a year of doing the podcast was that Charlotte Ward was writing in favor of conspirituality, not as a warning sign. She is a conspiracy theorist. Her her supervisor, David Voas, who only oversaw the paper, didn't know that at the time either, because we've talked to him. Charlotte it has a history of uh, of conspiratorial thinking, and when we went back and read the paper after finding this out, you could actually see how it's written in such an ambiguous way that it could actually be promotional of the idea, which we found fascinating. We all have our different inroads to this sort of skepticism around practices embedded in the wellness industry. And I'll say for my own reason is I really don't like charlatans and I don't like grifters. I don't like people who exploit other people through supposedly spiritual or wellness practices and take advantage of them. I've always felt that way. My work in this long precedes the podcast. It's just that there was a much smaller audience because I don't think that people recognize that there were dangers in what wellness influencers were doing. And when I started practicing yoga in the nineties, there weren't influencers period, but even then, the very first yoga studio I practiced at was at Mukti Yoga in New York City. And I have plenty of fond memories and and still have friends who were or are teachers there. But there there is some conspiratorial thought back then. But they were usually consolidated in the brick-and-mortar spaces wherever they were. But right. with the online life that we live, they are able to spread out everywhere now. And so that is my own personal interest, especially spending time as a health and science journalist, I just really get annoyed and scared by all the pseudoscience that happens in these spaces. And so that's really where my interest in the work lies.
0: Right. And and in the book, uh, for everyone listening, uh, the authors go through all of their experiences. And, and I think all of them had... I feel like the word traumatic experience or trauma is thrown around too much, but I'll say challenging, you know, eye-opening, illuminating experiences uh, in a not very positive way uh, through various kind of yoga practices, new age practices that I think my guess is all turned you on to an awareness around this subject more so than someone who is probably a passive yoga participant or anything along those lines. Is, is that a fair assessment?
1: Definitely. Matthew was indoctrinated into two different cults when he was younger. So he has, you know, he's on his own therapeutic journey as well as looking to professionalize and help people as well. And Julian was involved in a cult like environment in yoga spaces. I was around them. I never fully bought into what was being presented. So I never went into the full, I'm going to live with my teacher (laughs) sort of environment. But I was definitely around those spaces enough to to both be taken in by some charismatics, but also recognize eventually that, that usually when someone tells you they can solve all your problems, that there's something suspicious going on behind that.
0: Right. Um, You touched on it a little bit uh, a few minutes ago when you said that the rise of conspiritualities tends to be associated with periods of you know, significant change or, or catastrophe. I'm curious, and then I did want to ask, uh, what did it look like in the 1930s? What did it look like in the 1960s? Certainly the rest of the conversation is what does it look like now? But I'm curious to know what it looked like back then. And, and then the related question is, what makes conspirituality so attractive in, in these times of turmoil?
1: In the 1930s, when you're living during a depression, from my understanding, I've never done that, but people are looking for meaning. People are always looking for meaning. But when something happens and you go about the normal course of your life, and then all of a sudden everything disappears or society's in flux, there is a greater quest uh, for that meaning. And so in the 1930s. I haven't looked at that period as deeply, but I have a good friend named Dax Devlon Ross, and we used to run an independent publishing company together. We published about 10 books between the two of us over a decade. And in one of his books, he talks about a man who I believe his name is Father John Devine. And he, in the African-American community in New York at that time, he was able to become a multimillionaire in the 1930s while everyone was going through a depression. And it was because he was selling this aspirational religion. And he wasn't the only one, but that was very common because if people are broke and they're looking for something and someone promises you that something's just down the road. I mean, that's a common trope in religion, but especially during periods of distress. So that is that is one area where I identified it during that period. 1960s was a little bit different because you basically had feminism and civil rights happening at the same time. And you also had a broad use of psychedelics. So you you had a lot going on in the 60s, and a lot of people were very disaffected of the power structures that were happening. And that opened the door for a lot of sort of conspiratorial thinking, because there was such a power struggle happening in politics during that period. And it really didn't calm down until... The Reagan era, and we can talk about you know how much it calmed down, but there was definitely a consolidation of power in the 1980s. But during the period from JFK up until Jimmy Carter, there was a lot of flux, and so people can take advantage of that and monetize and manipulate it, and that's what we saw happen. And it was happening as much on the right as in spiritual communities. Uh, and so I I would argue that something similar has been happening in this country for a while, but the pandemic just open the front gates.
0: I wanted to ask you this before, but I forgot. Your last podcast was called Earth Rising, um, which sounds pretty new-agey. Uh, how do you reconcile that with the forefront of calling out the conspirituality movement? And this is a question I was going to say for the end, but I wanted to ask it now, because it also invites what is your what is your own perspective or belief in in spirituality? Uh, how does that impact your lives? And, and I ask that because um, I was just at psychedelic science twenty twenty three in Denver, where twelve thousand people descended for a big you know it was actually surprisingly buttoned up to on psychedelics. I thought there was going to be a lot more interesting clothing and it was actually pretty professional and 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 uh, you know thoughtful. but Roland Griffiths, who's a researcher at Johns Hopkins gave this very, very touching talk at the end because he's suffering from stage four colon cancer and presumably does not have much time left for this world. And so I'm sure it was touching to see all of his work culminate in such a fantastic event. But he also touched deeply about how spirituality and the mystical experience that arises during psychedelic therapies is strongly correlated with success in, in psychedelic therapies in terms of improving depression and, and and all of that. So there is clearly on a scientific basis value to having spirituality as, as part of life. Uh, again, it's, it's the fundamental nature of this conversation, which is sometimes that runs up against rationality and and healthy skepticism. So I'm really curious to know where you land on that.
1: Sure, we'll start with Earthrise. So in 2001, I started an arts company with a friend who was an artist called Earthrise Arts. And then a few years later, Earthrise Sound System was a music project I did with a friend of mine. And so I just kind of have taken that name. So when I started podcasting, it made sense to just do Earthrise. And my appreciation of that term comes from the writings of Joseph Campbell who shortly after the moon landing, there was the famous photo of Earthrise, which was the most famous photograph of the 20th century, which is taken from the moon of seeing the Earth rise over the horizon of the moon. And the way that Campbell talked about it was that it was the first time in history we had actual photographic evidence that humans are not the center of the universe. And I really liked that taming of the ego because I have a degree in religion I'm personally an atheist but I gravitate toward Buddhism. I'm not a Buddhist but I really like the framework that was created by Buddha and it it's a very grounding practice to me in the sense of understanding that everything is situational. Everything is relative and contextual. We're not, there is no I, I, there's no identity, and we're constantly moving through the environment and and sort of becoming different things. And if you can keep your center through all of the different fluctuations that are occurring, you won't be as afflicted by it. That also made sense to me from my psychedelics usage, which has continued for 30 years now up until this past weekend. But much, much more sparse now is when I was younger, yeah. but that also during that period of college, when I was doing it a lot more in the 1990s, it really blew my mind open. And then here I am in a position where I'm studying religion and I'm having these experiences, but importantly, I'm also the religion journalist for the school newspaper at Rutgers, where I went for two years. And I was going and interviewing heads of all of the different campus organizations. I was interviewing priests and imams and rabbis and Buddhists. And what I found fascinating was that everyone had their own take on existence, but everyone also thought theirs was the right one. And I was like, how do you weigh that out? And that's what really actually led me to atheism because I was like, there are so many different stories and mythologies that are created out of these traditions, which I love. But then when it becomes doctrinized and it becomes a power struggle, then I think it's problematic. And so weighing out that balance between between rationality and and also understanding that you can have these deep experiences has also been something that I've been working out and working on throughout my entire life.
0: Right, and and where do you stand on that right now? If you were going to stem up your viewpoint on it,
1: Buddhism okay. that really that really provides a framework, and basically just in a broad summation that everything that you suffer because you misperceive what existence is your misperception can then open you up to a host of afflictions if you're not careful so there are these certain practices that we have that can help you to perceive correctly or at least perceive in such a way that doesn't open you up to those afflictions
0: and and what 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 is your perception of existence i guess is is the nut of the question
1: at evolution is a pretty intense and crazy process that we're constantly learning more and more about and how consciousness evolved in one particular animal is a fantastic question that has not yet been answered. Uh, But I am not a dualist, so that I do think it's an emergent phenomenon. And I think the study of consciousness is just fascinating. And that's why behind me, there's probably a good 20 neuroscience books that I'm just enthralled by trying to figure out that process.
0: Cool. Okay. I, I mean, this wasn't uh, meant to be a uh, an inquisition of your personal beliefs. It's just I'm I'm curious as how oh, I'm happy to talk about it. Yeah. Okay. I'm ha- yeah.
1: No. No. I'm very happy to talk about any of it, and I'm open to all ideas and inquiries.
0: Cool. And one of the things I that you said I think which is worth noting is one of the things that also makes conspirituality so attractive is like the inherently secretive nature, which creates the a sense of exclusivity associated with it and a a charitable. I also found it interesting, it comes up later in the book, uh, that the mouthpieces of a lot of spirituality aren't held to fact. Their story can constantly evolve to make it exciting uh, I think in particular, you said charismatics, especially in their ultimate form as cult leaders are like theater directors, always searching for new scripts with new content, uh, without new content, their, their magic grows old. And it's something that I just noticed completely independent that uh, about 10 years ago, I got to turned on to the work of Dave Asprey and Bulletproof Coffee. And, you know, I think there was a lot of merit to what he was talking about. And, and I think the world from, uh, nutritional perspective warranted a re-examination of fat and what's healthy and all that kind of stuff. And that made a lot of sense, you know, healthy fats and coffee and satiating hunger and fasting. I mean, I think a lot of that has been more borne out, uh, by, growing body of evidence but i've also noticed that dave asprey is a thing that he talks about tend to be more and more extreme and i kind of turned off the switch when there was that whole uh, getting sunlight on your butt kind of phenomenon i don't remember like i was just like jesus okay like somewhere along the line it it lost the the thread (laughs) and i see that across a lot of people Uh, so it it is fascinating and i think a, a key point to be touched on and recognized
1: Well, you asked one thing I didn't get to was about how, why people are attracted to them. I spent a lot of time at the Bulletproof Cafe in Santa Monica when I lived in Los Angeles. I was fully on board, not fully on board, but I enjoyed the coffee. I also enjoyed the keto bacon egg wraps that, that they offered. I read his first book as someone trying to learn, not as a skeptic. I was even reading it back then. I was a little like little red flag about the blue light blocking and all the different lights that he has. And I'm like, only rich people can really do this stuff. And I don't know about the science behind that, but, but I, I, I had, I agreed every one of these influencers that we cover, they start from a place of truth. And that's why people I believe are drawn in. So we can talk about someone like hot topic right now is RFK. And we're doing a lot of look, looking at him because he really is the ideal conspiritualist candidate right now because he says so many true things. We have a broken healthcare system. There are horrible incentives in the pharmaceutical industry. There are horrible operatives in government and the ways that we go about warfare. Like All of these things are true. Keep going down his train of thought, though, and that's where we start to notice problems with the behavior. And so you identified it with Asprey. If he had just had his coffee line and kept going, you know, he could probably. I might still even buy his beans. But then when he says that ninety eight percent of the world's coffee is mold, is it has mold in it and it's doing horrible things to you. But oh, guess what? I grow the only non mold proof or mold proof bean or whatever he says. Then yeah. you're like, okay, that's just marketing, and that's that's really where we land with a lot of the people that we cover. It's not that. There aren't lines of agreement across a number of things that they say. It's where they take it and how they try to sell it to you is what we identify.
0: Right. Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, And actually on that note, one of the things you talk about, I think, at length in the book is is how can spirituality, and, and again, just reframing what we're talking about here is how... You know, uh, we're seeing in the current age how left side of the political spectrum and the right side of the political spectrum have kind of merged into the current conspirituality. Um, you know, from the left side, it's like the return to Earth, the New Agey, like organic granola kind of thing, and and from the right, more the conspiracy theories around government and authority, and they just kind of come together to advance anti-vax anti-vax is probably the biggest one, but not the only form of like the Mm -hmm. conspirituality, but it's certainly a hot topic these days. Uh, but you also touch on how conspirituality, modern conspirituality, has co-opted a lot of indigenous practices and beliefs. Can you explain that and why it happens or has happened?
1: I'll explain it from my perspective. We all have differing perspectives, and that's something important about our podcast is we don't all have the same we come we come together in very similar places, but the the pathways of getting there aren't always the same. I feel that, and this is actually something I asked you during when I interviewed you five years ago or whatever, you know, how do you, how do you create a, a, a psilocybin company and yet honor indigenous beliefs and the practices and what happens if you try to patent these molecules? Right. And I don't, I haven't landed anywhere particular about that because I just gave a, a a talk at Powell's books on Monday for the book. And someone asked me in the Q and a about ancient indigenous practices. And I said, when it comes to healing, my, my concern is, does it work? Not, is it old? And I do think it's important to recognize where things come from and you can honor that if you're so called, but Americans have a real bad habit of honoring in such a way that really only feeds their ego and doesn't actually do anything for the culture. Like if we've identified uh, plastic shamans, is we didn't create that term, but someone did who, you know, white people in America who use Native American artifacts in their rituals where they monetize and they hold these rituals and they're waving the drums around. My question is are you going to the reservation and donating money or your time or your efforts there because that's real on the ground work and some people I'm sure are but there's there's this illusion of honoring cultures without actually doing anything that exists it's kind of like when you think your activism is tweeting and not actually donating money or doing something yeah. and so that's kind of where I where I land on that how are you using these tools and who is it benefiting are the questions you have to ask. And I don't think that there's a clear answer. I think it's dependent upon each situation. So it's kind of hard for me to talk about broadly because, yep. because one time I might be like, oh, that should totally be something that is focuses on that community. And other times I, I was a world music journalist for over a decade of my life. And the one thing you learn is that Every music form we have today comes from people meeting somewhere and then making music together and creating something new out of it. And I think if you focus too much on some sort of authenticity, then you learn actually you you stop to learn about how things actually evolve, which is just as important as recognizing where things come from.
0: Yeah, it's it's also become a topic, especially on that point with AI, which is, you know, <laughs> yeah. if it's just, I mean, what is new art and new writing except, you know, incremental typically uh, evolution from what has come immediately before. So if there's copyright in your newness and you don't have to, you know, pay all the authors who came before you who helped inform your writing style consciously or unconsciously, why would companies who have built AIs have to do the same thing? It it becomes a really interesting conversation, not only in terms of copyright and, and intellectual property, but also the evolution of how things evolve. Um, Hence the name of this podcast too, how we evolve. But
1: (laughs) let me just say last week, I talked to two different copyright lawyers about that topic because I also work with some AI companies like startup ideas and, and I'm trying as a journalist to really understand it. And I talked to two different lawyers who both have worked in copyright spaces for decades and they're just like, we don't know where this is going to go. Like, we have standing with certain principles. But there's so much room here for error and for for companies to get by that they're all trying to play catch up at the moment, which is which is kind of scary. Just yesterday, National Geographic laid off all of its staff writers. And that's really? a company I yeah, yeah, that's wow. a company I worked for almost 20 years ago and I almost took a full-time job with them. I love that. I grew up reading them and got to do some work with them in photography and writing and to see that they, I mean, so foundational in this culture that they just let go of all their writers. I was like that's that's really scary as a writer <laughs> to see that happening.
0: Well, it goes back to, the I think, the earlier point that we started with, which is around journalism, which is part of the rise of conspirituality is because there's not a whole lot of rigor uh, around journalism, right? With with a social media world, everybody can become an influencer and it doesn't matter you know, what your ethics are, what your knowledge is. It doesn't really matter. You just have a following. I didn't realize this, but I was at, a, at an event last night and and someone showed me uh, someone on TikTok who now is I guess one of the most influential TikTokers who has over a billion views and she got successful because she was a dancer, which is wonderful. But I don't know what get what what empowers her to opine on anything but for dance.
1: That's I'm working on an Andrew Huberman episode right now, and I respect him in neuroscience. I've listened to his podcast. He's done some great episodes with people that I really like. But he has a habit of going on other people's podcasts and saying things outside of his field of research that are just provably untrue. And I even had a chemist on a few weeks ago to talk about one of his claims that sunscreen molecules can pass the blood-brain barrier and stay in your neurons for up to 10 years. I talked to a chemist who also talked to a number of other chemists who specialize in sunscreen, and they don't even know how you would possibly test for that but he he went on this podcast he said it and he's repeated it since numerous times and the episode that i'm working on with him is just like why exactly what you just said why do people if they're not in their lane of expertise why do they feel that they can speak with the same confidence on topics outside of their lane and not be called out but also not own up to it because that chemist in question replied to his thread and had a whole bunch of people jump in and he didn't reply to any of that. And that's, that's really dangerous to me when, you know, it's, it's okay to want to know about a lot of things, but I feel like one of the most confusing examples is that people take Russell Brand to be a journalist. And if you actually look at the, and I've done this a few times on episodes, if he'll flash articles on the screen. That's his research. I go and then read the articles. And then sometimes he'll actually be saying the opposite of what the article said, or he's taking them from sources that are extremely questionable. But because of his style and his charisma, people just say whatever comes out of his mouth is true. And that's, that's frightening to me.
0: Yeah. Well, I I mean, I think one of the things I emailed you about and and we'll do a little bit later because I want to talk more about some of the thoughts and books is I've been listening to the interviews with RFK Jr. And and you have these very influential people, Joe Rogan, uh, Aubrey Mark, the guys from the All In Podcast. But like all these big people coming out in favor of RFK and you listen to him and, and RFK is very charismatic and he tells a great mm-hmm. story. And one thing I want to do and, and what none of the interviews have done has actually been to hold him to account, being like, okay, you reference this study, but what does that study actually say? And so we'll do an exercise a little bit later and and I know certainly chat GPT is not the be- all end- all but it does offer some insight into you know questioning some of the the statements that at least give rise to further investigation of those. but before we go there, why why is it that conspirituality seems to lean on indigenous practices so much?
1: There's some romanticization of the past and I don't think it's limited to wellness people you see it in christianity all the time i mean their entire religion is based on the idea that someone's going to come back and there's this always there's this constant search for this ideal time in history or in wellness this purified ideal body slash mind state that you can get into and that really seems to me to be the reason because people will look at other cultures as if they were they had these very harmonious societies and we've gone astray but we need to get back to this and as a religion student one of the things we had to do is we spent a lot of time studying this the rise of civilization in in Harappan Valley 7000 years ago and how that created The ancient Near Eastern religions—that the sort of seat of where all the religious monuments and artifacts that we know of come from—obviously, it'll the thinking will predate that, but those are the actual places we can look to start to piece together what a society is. And at least for the last seven thousand years, there has not been an ideal society. (laughs) There has never been a utopia that has happened yet. But it's this fantasizing about the idea that it did exist once. And if we only do this, can we get back to that place? So some people latch on to Shipibo tradition, you know, every ayahuasca ceremony I've sat in has been in that tradition, and they've been absolutely wonderful, and conducted by people very deep in that tradition. And I, I think there's value in really understanding and studying a tradition. But sometimes, you know the i feel the people i did it with were honoring that but then maybe you take native american headdresses and you wear them at Coachella and it's kind of out of context yeah. and so that's 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 very difficult territory to navigate the differences between taking part in and honoring and supporting the cultures and Co opting them for a fashion sense or because you think that they were perfect at one time. Those are, those are, that's really going to fall upon the individual, uh, you know, to decide how deeply invested they actually are in that culture.
0: This is totally off topic because I'm just th- reading through my notes. I grabbed them as they, as they were coming. But I love what you said here, which is a community organized around an authoritarian leader who pretends to have secret knowledge that cannot be questioned, will never truly meet the epistemic existential and social needs of its members. Can Can you elaborate on that?
1: You mentioned, well, let's go back to the journalism question, uh, yeah. because I started 30 years ago this year is when I first published my first article in the school newspaper when I was a freshman. So I've seen journalism. I worked for daily newspapers in New Jersey outside of college too. And so I I was in the newsroom where you sit with a bunch of journalists and yelling at the editor and picking up phones. This is predates email. I mean, we had email, we just didn't use it. We actually used phones to do all of our stories or to go down the ground. And we had a headline writer, every newspaper had a headline writer and that headline writer existed so that you didn't repeat headlines over and over throughout the paper, they had one specific job. But now the news is the headline. And that's all that people see. And in order to keep people's attention focused, you have to make the headlines more and more extreme. I'm on the Epic Times email list and every day it's just in Joe Marcola's email list I'm on. Yeah. And I look at these and every day it's just, it's at this intensity, at this intensity. And it's meant to keep you in a state of fear and anxiety, which brings you to the charismatic leaders. Uh, Charles Anderson, who was the second cult leader that Matthew was indoctrinated by, he, they were an apocalyptic cult. It was based on A Course of Miracles, but it was all about the world is ending. We have the solution. And so every day there had to be something to be done to be like, see, like from what Matthews tells me, Charles would like take headlines from the newspaper every day and as proof that he was right. So he'd be like, see, it's happening. See, it's happening. And we have a very, I don't know if we talk about it in the book, or we talk about it in episodes. Like I was in New York City on 9 11. Matthew was not far away in upstate New York, but they ended up coming down to like proselytize shortly after in Washington Square Park where I hung out. Like I might have seen him as one of the religious groups there. And so I'm on the ground and having been in the trade center less than an hour before it happened and have gone throughout that whole day and been through it. And then he comes in from this place of like the world is ending, but we have the solution. And I'm like, no, these people need housing. (laughs) Like it's a very different mindset. And the charismatic is able to make you feel like this was part of a narrative that is leading somewhere. And you have to do what they say in order to be on the right side of history rather than just being on the ground dealing with what's going on and trying to make it better for everyone around you and i think that that distinction is really important but it also is why people will fall victims to the charismatic leaders because as alan watts said people like feeling that they have in on the secret sauce that they have something that no one else does it's just a human trait you like to have secret knowledge and if you find someone who convinces you they have that knowledge and they can give it to you but they're dangling in front of you. You'll never quite get it, but it's yeah. there, and you're constantly reaching for it. And then that's how they get power over you.
0: And it's constantly evolving too, right? Uh.
1: It's it's kind con- yeah exactly like the headlines. If I started talking about Wayfair right now, people would be like, "What are you talking about?" But if I say the Titan, the ship, you know, I can then take advantage of the algorithm and try to fit into a narrative that I want to exist. So it has to constantly evolve with the news. And if you watch what a lot of the influencers do, uh, JP Sears does this a lot, Mickey Willis does it, Joe Marcola does it, Like the people we identify in the book is that they take the news of the day as proof that they were right all along, no matter how far away from it is from what they were talking about.
0: I can see the appeal of doing that and make me feel good to be right all the time too. <laughs> One thing I found incredibly fascinating in the book was the modern wellness movement that has, I think, been the foundation of conspirituality, and in, in this go-round of it uh, was built off of yoga. Now, most people, and I certainly didn't know this until I read the book, believe that the yoga that gets practiced these days is the descent change from, I don't know how many hundreds or thousands of years ago from India. But that's very much not the case, and in fact the the story of modern yoga is much more sordid and involves a lot of elements that I think will make people uncomfortable can Can you tell that story?
1: What was going on in the late nineteenth century or 20th century in India was a revolt against colonialism, and so you have Krishna Macharya, who ended up teaching. The main teachers who brought it to the West, including Iyengar and Patabi Joyce. And he was just trying to make a living. His origin myth is that he was visited by an angel and said, you have to teach yoga. But what he started to do was he realized that the people around him were more interested in weightlifting and in calisthenics and gymnastics. And so he started to incorporate all those things into yoga. Now, concurrently to when he was doing that, there was a real strong push of European bodybuilders, including Eugene Sandow, who we cover in the book, and we tell the story through his story. He was a white supremacist and a eugenicist, but he goes to India because he'll go wherever people pay him to look at his body. And the Indians are enthralled by him because he's this very large, strong man. And they, the people who were tired of tired of colonial rule in India They wanted that strength to overcome the oppressive power. So you find yoga being pulled into all of these different strength building techniques. And that's where modern yoga comes from. I mean, Ashtanga was not practiced thousands of years ago. The Hatha Yoga Pratapika has like a dozen postures or 20. I forget the exact number, but it had a limited number of poses and it was more about meditative techniques and also philosophy. That's Yana Yoga. That's where the lineage comes from. So, or devotional, of course, Bhakti Yoga. And there were many yogas because there wasn't one unified system, there were different pathways into understanding this broader umbrella term that we've created. But the origins of what we practice in the West, they come from this combination of exercises, which isn't inherently white supremacist or colonialist or any of those things on its own. It's just that we identified that the people who shepherded it and brought it in happened to be <laughs> coming from that angle. So it's really one of those convergence of forces that happens culturally that creates something new out of it. And like anything, there is no pure practice. There's, there's no origin story that comes from this place that is only good. Uh, that doesn't mean it doesn't have benefits. I still practice yoga. Julian still teaches it. We, we get a lot of benefit from it. But identifying where it comes from, I think, is important because it dispels that romanticized notion that we talked about a few minutes ago. And it kind of grounds you into something like... If this helps me through my day and it makes my body feel better, great, do it. But if you think it's going to lead you to some place where you've reached enlightenment and ultimate bliss and you'll stay there forever, you're looking in the wrong places because nothing can actually do that.
0: And as you explain, and I'm going to read a quote because uh, it's, it's a bold statement. Uh, you can see how it it gets ingrained with subtext that is potentially problematic. And And the quote I have here is, What we didn't realize until years later was that this whirlwind of marketing techniques and sales funnels functioned as a delivery system for the pieces of a disturbing historical puzzle we can now identify as soft eugenics. Modern yoga and wellness, which echoed with a kind of now depoliticized body fascism that was over a century old, was being laundered through an aspirational consumerism so that its sexist, racist, and violent implications were almost invisible. Dot, dot, dot. The twisted message was that if a person was injured or disabled, they were revealing the karmic punishment of their own unprocessed trauma. We didn't recognize the eugenics theme running unconsciously through all of it, that flaws in bodies should be identified, corrected, and bred out of existence such that they no longer troubled the advancement of human evolution or the conscience of the privilege. At the time, we didn't understand that these obsessions with posture, bodily strength, and purity have always been foundational to the politics of us versus them that divides the worthy from the degenerate and I'll stop there. Uh, There's a lot there, but I'll I'll put that back on you because I think it warrants unpacking.
1: That is a very interesting passage. And it was also something of a revelation of our own podcast, because when I was practicing at Jiva Mukti, the teachers, some of the teachers would say, if you can't backbend well, that's because your heart isn't open. Now I have a number of injuries. I've broken numerous bones in my body from being an athlete when I was growing up. And I can forward bend very well. I still can't back bend very well. I haven't done a wheel pose in many years. I'll do light bridges because of my shoulders and some problems I have in my back. But imagine you're in a class and you're doing a bridge and you're struggling. And then the person next to you is doing this perfect wheel. And the instructor is saying, if you can't do the wheel, then your heart isn't open. Imagine the sort of like, pressure that puts on you emotionally. And that's what I went through. What I didn't know at the time when I was practicing is that came from Michael Roach, who was the cult leader that Matthew was indoctrinated by in his first cult because jiva mukti and michael roach had a strong relationship and he would often speak it i never went to his events but he would often speak and they took his language and started to incorporate it into their physical postures so that's just an anecdote but it's a small example of the sort of rhetoric that happens in the yoga spaces where they correlate physical movement with emotional states which then translates into spiritual states and that is pretty common and so the soft eugenics idea comes from this idea that if you are not able to do these physical things, there is a spiritual correlate that happens. So imagine again, if you're a disabled person, or if you just have certain bodily problems, like everyone's body is different. Our femurs our the head of our femur bones sit differently. So when I squat, I have to turn on my feet. My old workout partner didn't That has nothing to do with spirituality. That has to do with how we were born and where our femur sockets lay. But in the yoga world, they sort of codified it as every physical act is a spiritual act as well. And that puts a lot of pressure on people because suddenly, if you're not able to accomplish certain things, you must be in the out group. And historically, we've seen what happens when people are in the out group. And in the 90s and early aughts, when I started thinking about these things as being an injured person going into these spaces, you don't see the sort of line that could happen between that sort of rhetoric and a Holocaust. That just seems like an absurd stretch of the imagination. Fast forward a generation where we are now and seeing the sort of rhetoric that comes from that, in one example is like the the trans conversation happening right now and what is and isn't acceptable. We can use testosterone replacement theory if it gives us bigger muscles as men, but if it's somebody whose identity doesn't equate to their biological sex, then there's a problem. Then you see that same sort of rhetoric happening where people think that they know what's happening in people's inner states by their physical appearance. So that's a lot to unpack, and we're still working on that, but these threads are exactly what happen in cultures that lead to very dangerous places.
0: Yeah, there's a step there that I was going to add, which is your physical ability translates to your spiritual ability, which in a sense translates to your self-worth, right? Yes, yes. And that's where you start to tease out because the other thing that I think is important is a lot of modern yoga was tied into the modern uh, Indian national nationalization movement, right? It became co-opted by the strength of what it was to be an Indian, like somehow the lines drawn by nation states matter to who you are. And what was fascinating is that you mentioned that Heinrich Himmler carried around a copy of the Bhagavad Gita as well, which is, you know, you can start to see that how physical movement, spiritual worth, who is worthy, nationalism, it it all kind of falls out in in a kind of terrifying way.
1: Well, and that's a great example because last week Modi was celebrated in Congress, which is really dangerous because his democracy is failing because one of the things he's done is he tries to nationalize yoga. He teaches these yoga events to tens of thousands of people. He's tried to trademark it. He he advertises tourism to India through yoga, and then he's trying to get all the Muslims out of the country. So that is a very real example of how someone – co-ops a practice for their own benefit and then tries to take advantage and then you see that walk to all of a sudden people being harmed very quickly through that example
0: yeah you also had the line relatedly the conspiracy theory is a paranoid fantasy about a source of disgust that haunts our lives and must be purified as a foreign influence it is unnatural and repugnant it must be purified from the body with cleansing practices like yoga, uh, purified from the mind with prayers and chants and purified from one's native land with anti-immigration policies, like we're talking about with Modi, up to and including pogroms. You also say that fascism is a militant longing to restore the glorious mythical past of an idealized group of people. The golden age and the land it supposedly flowered in has been corrupted by the press, academics, immigrants, people of the wrong race, religion, or sexual orientation, or sick or disabled people. Uh, Those two points, like, really, I think, draw the circle about how all of this new-aged wellness focus translates into elements of self-worth, spiritual worth, uh, and to the extent you're on the out of that, it can be um, militarized, both th- theoretically, spiritually, and, and physically, and with arms, uh, as we saw in in the Nazi movement in in the 30s, uh, it all loops together, and that's pretty terrifying, you know, when you think about it. And pull it out to all these well-meaning people, and and you pointed out that a lot of the current conspiritualists, um start from a place of truth and start from a place of well-meaning, and then as it evolves, as they need to continue to catch up to maintain the headlines, you can see how it creates the momentum to a very potentially dangerous us versus them movement. Not that we don't already have enough baked into our society.
1: (laughs) Binaries play really well. And it's one of the challenges we face trying to communicate on social media because people assume, for example, that because we've promoted the vaccines and we try to combat anti-vax misinformation and disinformation, that we are fans of pharmaceutical companies. And that's just not true. I mean, the book before this I wrote was about psychedelic therapy. And the half the book I spent talking about how antidepressants evolved from textile mills in the 1880s up through the current day and how much of a problem I think the overprescription of those substances are. And what, what are we really trying to do with these substances? And the fact that's really hard to get across is... They really have helped like benzodiazepines and SSRIs really have helped some people and they really have harmed some people. I'm sure psychedelics fall in the same realm where they really help some people and they are harming some people, but those conversations don't, they work well in long form podcasts. Most people don't listen to these like on a daily basis, like they may get something from this conversation, but on a daily basis, you're seeing 300 characters or whatever you're looking at at a time. And in those spaces, there's no room for nuance. And that's one of the real challenges that we have going from our long form podcast to then talking about things on social media because a number of our followers on Instagram have told us they don't listen to our podcast, they just like our feed. And then they'll, they'll read something, and they'll be like, what about this, this, and this? And I'm like, well, yeah, we unpacked all that on this episode. And then they'll be like, well, we don't want to listen to two hours. Right. And I'm like, well, that's the problem. Don't you see that? <laughs>
0: Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Um, so I think I think we've touched on uh, to a, to a sufficient degree, and certainly encourage everybody listening. If if some of these comments and, and statements and, and lines of analysis uh, speak to you or are particularly provocative, you know, we're not unpacking the whole book here. We're just kind of hitting a lot of the headline points. But the the kind of headline point that I think Derek Julian and, and Matthew. Uh, we're we're pointing at was not necessarily to take a position against spirituality per se, but how spirituality can be used in ways from relatively harmless, uh, which is, you know, creating influencers who, you know, maybe try to do the right thing to more harmless when those influencers now step out of their lane and start speaking to things that are potentially problematic that evolve into anti-vax movements or, or ridiculous health trends that are actually counterproductive to a lot of people to the point where they can also be co-opted into militaristic fascist movements in, in the purest sense of the words. And so as much as you know, it's easy to say like, oh, ex- exploration with spirituality is is totally harmless, you have to still maintain Healthy skepticism, skepticism, and rationality as you engage in this because it's not necessarily entirely harmless. Is that a, a fair assessment of of your position? I think you should
1: write our marketing copy. That was fantastic. <laughs> Absolutely. And I never. And often we've been. People have said, "Don't you believe in anything?" I unpacked what I believe in a little bit before that. But I also, when people have revelatory experiences in yoga or meditation. And it is deeply meaningful to them. Like, why would you ever try to take that away from somebody like for whatever people do and and how they function and how they whatever makes them better people in the world? Like, as I said, I still practice these things almost daily where I sit behind me for 10, 15 minutes and clear my head or I have an hour over here to do some asanas like that's very important in my life as well. We're talking about a very specific angle. And unfortunately, reading heuristics with some of these topics is problematic because if someone's benefited from something, Teasing apart what we're saying about what certain people will do with these practices compared to how they actually benefit from these practices is a difficult discussion if you're not actually talking to someone in real time. Uh, But yes, absolutely. If people get things from these practices, that's awesome. And I hope they continue.
0: Yep. Now, I I think I certainly fall prey to it because I'm, very much a rationalist and, and and a skeptic, but I certainly have been entranced by some of the spiritual movement, and, and I would say I'm I'm a spiritual person, and I'm I'm not denying that, but I certainly went into it with I think a little bit of well a lot of naivete about the potential ways that it can be manipulated. Um, so one of the things I want to ask you is is why why this seems to be so fascinating I, I know we talk about it occurring in the uh, existence of turmoil but there's one one part of the book where you mention that I'm going to pronounce it wrong, but Iyengar's Magnus Opus, Light on Yoga, made modern readers alienated by their urban technolog- technologized lives feel like they could touch a mystery again. This is something that comes up in psychedelic therapies actually quite a bit. Somehow psychedelics help you reconnect to the mystery of it all and it gives people a sense of peace. How, how do you reckon, reconcile that in, in your mind?
1: I think it might have been the person who gave Huxley LSD for the first time. It could be somebody else, but who said that psychedelics are a non-specific amplifier. Yeah. I've really always enjoyed that term. And when it comes to relating to mystery, I think it just depends on that, like where you come into the experience with and how you want to treat it after it's happened to you. So for me, when I was doing a lot of psychedelics in the mid-90s, there was a lot of mystery around, and I very much thought that there were foreign objects out there that couldn't be quantified or qualified in any way. Um, not that I don't think that's true now, like, I think there's plenty we don't know about. I think the difference for me at this point is that I'm okay with the fact that we don't know everything, and that if something that I believe is showed to be wrong, then I'm then you evolve your thinking on the topic. I mean, that's that's I think good science. I think that's good reasoning to evolve it. But I'm I'm okay with if something happens. I've certainly been in ceremonies where things that I can't explain, where some of what was going on inside of my head was spoken all of a sudden in real time by people across the room or yeah. verbatim. In those experiences, I can't really explain that and I'm not really looking to, uh, and, but I also don't leave that too confused by it or too concerned by it. I'd rather just take that experience and what I took from it because most of the time when I'm in a ceremony or I'm having these experiences, it's for me, it's mostly of just replaying scenes of my life and thinking about how I can do things better moving forward. That's the sort of therapeutic aspect for myself. Yeah. So that's what I've sort of embodied in my own practices and try to take away from, from them. Uh, I, I think any good scientist will say that there's plenty we don't understand and we may never understand, and I'm okay with that. I don't think that that necessitates the idea that there's a specific place we have to get to with that information. It's more of observational. It's like, huh, that happened. Okay, so now let me focus on my next day, and that's that's. I guess that would be exemplary of of where I've landed with a lot of these things, and that might change in the future.
0: Yeah, it's uh, you know, it's it's something I struggle with, and and so I ask these questions not not to critique them, but I'm, I'm genuinely curious as I continue my evaluation and examination of it. And you know, in, in fairness, one of the contrary points Dean Radin on who was talking about magic and and the science of, of real magic and and they've done double blind placebo studies showing that people can sense when they other people are watching them and he's like it's a small effect but it's real you know there's enough data there to say that is scientifically verified that some people beyond chance can accurately detect when they're being watched even there's no physical way to do so. so but one of the other things that Dean talked about was. You know the power of belief that what is achievable may be connected scientifically to you know, the power of belief, and that the more people believe, the more the human consciousness can have an impact on the the physical world, the materialist world and and so it's always a it's always a balance right it's always about how do you keep enough space for mystery because it seems that possibly the fact of mystery is important while still not giving up um your agency as a, as a rational human.
1: One of my favorite neuroscientists is V.S. Ramachandran and he is the person who has created the mirror box, which has helped people with phantom limb syndrome. So if you lose a limb, he created a technique that helps them release the pain because it's neurological in their body. Right. But another set of experiments he did was he, would blindfold someone meaning let's say hit their left eye they would cover their left eye and they would show them two photos that they could only see one photo out of the right and one photo out of the left and so the photo out of the right eye you would see would be a shovel and the photo out of the left would be a chicken but they could not see the left side at all and so when he would ask the person what is that shovel used for they would be like to clean the chicken coop. Right. <laughs> you know, and there's all, there's blind sight. There's the fact that we all have a we can't see it because every person has a black spot in both eyes that you cannot see out of the information is filled in by the brain, along with continuity from the rest of the picture that you are able to see our bodies and our minds are fascinating. And that's that's where I find mystery so fascinating. Like when I come across studies like that, I'm like, that is so amazing. Just to be able to like think about those things and how how our body fills in the gaps. And that's what our minds are doing all the time. And they're filling in gaps to make up for understanding that we we don't have or we lack.
0: You touch on quantum physics a tiny little bit in the book and and how it's being co-opted a lot of time for 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 some conspiracy spirituality thinking but there also are elements of of quantum physics that invite uh, that level of mystery and uh, almost reverence right and i did a podcast with uh, dr randy sherlock who was our medical director at field trip in the u.s and and he was talking about how quantum entanglement moves faster than the speed of light which seems to defy the laws of the material universe and he points out that the most rational explanation is that there are aspects of existence, I won't use the term the universe, but of existence that exists outside of space-time, and that's how it's possible. And then you get people people like Don Hoffman uh, talking about how consciousness is the fundamental unit of the universe, which he's trying to validate, but whether you accept that or not, uh, it does seem pretty well established, and I think he makes a persuasive case, and I don't know if you've read any of Don Hoffman, uh, space-time as as the basic unit seems to be on the out that there seems to be a recognition among physicists that there's layers of reality that exist outside of space-time. Um and I don't know, it 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 for me that gives like that that's kind of the balance, which is like when when science gives space for the mystery uh, that science may never be able to explain but is willing to recognize it, it gives me comfort that sometimes I'm not <laughs> losing the thread quite a bit.
1: My question with that always comes that as a mental game, I find it fascinating. I've read a few Brian Greene books. I've read some other I, – I, I don't speak on quantum physics because I don't think anyone should. And from the physicists I've read, that's how they feel about it too. Yeah. So that's, that's generally where I fall. At the end of the day, my concern when I think about those things is, okay, is my mortgage going to be paid next month? Right. And 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 I and I say that not because I don't like those mental games sometimes, but usually from what I've noticed, specifically to what you're pinpointing in our book, is that influencers will talk about these things to try to prove something that they're eventually trying to sell you. Right, and that's that's the thread we're making. It's just like this see this now this and here's my workshop on it and that that's where my concern with it comes in because yeah. i don't think that these yoga teachers really have a grasp of of quantum physics so when they use when they use trendy terms uh, to to make claims and then you find something at the end of their downline that's where i kind of get turned off of it
0: yeah and i think that's the important point to keep coming back to in this conversation which is actually a good segue to the next part i want to talk about Offend people, and it's going to get people. You know, we already lived in an enraged world where people feel powerless. And then when people come out with statements that challenge some foundational beliefs, they get pissed off. And Mm -hmm. so I think it's important to recognize it's like what Derek is saying is that there's nothing wrong with being spiritual or exploring that. Just be cautious of not getting duped by people who are going to take advantage or try and sell you something. Uh, Speaking of which, uh, you touched on them before, but I've noticed in your Twitter thread that RFK seems to be an object of, of fascination for you. And, and I think that's well-founded, but I would love to hear your thoughts on, on RFK. And then one of the things I wanted to do was I was listening to the first hour of RFK Jr. on Joe Rogan and want to stress test a couple of his statements because I think it's worth unpacking some of these statements because I've noticed that Joe Rogan, Aubrey Marcus, everybody else who's interviewing him, does not they just take it kind of on fact or when they challenge him, they just take his rebuttal on fact without actually diving a level deeper saying like, did you read the study like you mentioned before about people not reading studies and just grabbing the headlines and misinterpreting them um but yeah what, what's your take on on rfk because i have a feeling you think he's very dangerous
1: uh, very dangerous first off again someone who says truthful things and not gonna <clears throat> argue with that there are things he says that i'm fully on board with the problem is specific to what you just said he was the news nation did a roundtable or a, a a town hall with him last night and he is a master of Gish Gallop, as is Russell Brand. So basically, when he's challenged on a topic, he will then just rifle off on 10 different topics to confuse you so that you can't pinpoint him back to that topic. It is a tech is a rhetorical technique. Some people are very good at it, and he is extremely good at it. He's a rhetorician, and he definitely owns that space. And that's the problem. So when you have Crystal Ball trying to push back on him, and she did the best job of anyone I've seen – about the anti-vax stuff, she wouldn't let him get into that mode, but he would just constantly change the story. And he is very good at drawing affect out of people. And so if you're trying to pinpoint him on on a factual study that he's citing, the next thing he's going to do is start talking about a certain set of children who are harmed. Because what does that do? It immediately makes you think of Children being hurt. It doesn't yeah. matter whether or not it actually happened. And usually it doesn't with him, but that's what he's drawing on. He's able to do that over and over again. So even if you do get him on a podcast or in news or wherever that is, as soon as, as he'll just constantly move it to the point where you can't actually draw him back to. One of the greatest examples of this technique was when John Heilman cornered Russell Brand on Bill Maher's show earlier this year. And Heilman would not let go. He did such a good job for two minutes of trying to draw him on one specific topic. And what happened? Russell started getting bigger. He started waving his hands. His voice got louder. He started touching John, started touching Bill. He just made himself so large that you the attention stayed on him rather than on the fact that he wasn't answering the question. And that is exactly what RFK does. And that's why he will never successfully be challenged on these topics during these sorts of interactions.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I noticed that uh, in the few podcasts I've listened to with him, the first question comes out and before he answers a question, he tells a story about his kids mm-hmm. or something yes. along those lines. Like yep. you can see like it's an act. This is now a script that he plays out every single time because it works. because it comes across as likable and, and sincere and like truthfully, he's done some great work. Going back to your point about like, there's some truth to it. It's like, yes, I do think probably many regulatory organizations have, have been taken over by corporate Interests. I think that's probably true. Um, mm-hmm. oh, it also comes back to what the hell do you do about it? Because the other side of that equation is that you get people running regulatory agencies that know nothing about the industry that they're assuming to regulate. So there's a, a problem in that as well. And I haven't heard him offer any solutions to the the problem of corporate takeover of regulatory agencies
1: well he did offer one and this is what baffles me about when people on the left say well he's an environmental champion go to his website his solution for environmental problems are free market solutions right so he 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 wants to he wants crypto to be open with which i'm not necessarily against i've worked in that industry he wants to heavily regulate ai he he wants he wants free market solutions for environmentalism but then he said at his healthcare policy roundtable two nights ago that he wants to blackball scientists who have approved FDA clinical trials and gotten certain pharmaceuticals into, into the medical industry. So he's for regulations when he specifically wants something, but then he's wide open on other things. And the environmental piece just blows my mind that he thinks the free market is going to solve environmentalism. I think solutions actually will come from startups in some ways, but that's only going to happen if regulations are in place as well. So it's kind of baffling to me. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I I put I took some of the statements from RFK Jr. that he shared on Joe Rogan into um, ChatGPT, and by no means is ChatGPT the ultimate authority, but I think it invites enough scrutiny into a lot of these questions. So I've, I'm going to read a couple of them, and, and then we can discuss. I started my conversation with ChatGPT by saying I've been listening to various interviews. By Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who makes a number of claims about vaccines and vaccine safety. I'd like to ask you about some of his statements to see if they are true. Can you help with that? So it said it'd be happy to verify some of the information, but it also reminds us to check other sources. So I said, Kennedy claims that 70% of polio cases in the world today are a result of vaccine derived cases because at least one form of polio vaccine still in use uses live virus. Is there any evidence to support this claim? And so ChatGPT qualifies that its knowledge is only to September 2021. And then it says, firstly, it's crucial to recognize the incredible success of the polio vaccine. In the 1980s, polio was endemic in 125 countries and paralyzed about 350,000 children annually. Thanks to vaccines, the disease is now endemic in just two countries, Afghanistan and Pakistan. And the number of cases per year was in the low double digits. That said, in rare cases, the oral polio vaccine, which uses a live, weakened version of the virus, can mutate in a person's gut and leading to vaccine-associated paralytic poliomyelitis in the vaccinated individuals. Um, According to WHO data, I'm skipping a little bit here, the number of CVDPV cases does sometimes exceed the number of wild polio cases because of the success in reducing the latter to almost zero. However, stating this without the full context may give the wrong impression about the safety and efficacy of polio vaccine overall, which has been one of the most successful public health interventions in history. So if I'm reading that correctly, it's saying, yes, he is correct in saying that there's a chance that 70% of polio cases in the in the world today are the result of the vaccine, but that's only because there's such a small number of cases in the world because the vaccine has otherwise been so successful.
1: Um, There's more context though. And this is where he's so good because he'll give that talking point and people won't question him on him. There's a wonderful book called The Vaccine Race, which focuses specifically on the polio virus. So what happened was Jonas Salk gets most of the credit for the polio vaccine, which was not a live version of it. But then there was uh, Sabin who also created the live version of it. And his was his is the one that's mostly in use. Now, when it rolled out in the 1950s, there was a laboratory called Cutter, which did not actually attenuate it properly. And so they released it without proper regulations. There were three larger manufacturers that were very successful in attenuating it. Cutter Institute did not released it into the wild, and that impacted hundreds of thousands of pe- people and allowed the virus to spread and mutate from there. That is where the 70% number comes from. Right. It's interesting to note that it happened because of a lack of regulations. That incident ended up creating VERS in the 1980s, decades later, because what happened was there was so so much success in people suing Cutter Institute that it became a thing where if a person experienced the normal side effects of a vaccine which everyone experiences that's part of it they would then sue the vaccine company and so the government and so and so pharmaceutical companies wanted to stop producing vaccines because they were getting sued constantly by people who are experiencing side effects. Yeah. That led to theirs, and that led to not being able to hold pharmaceutical companies accountable in the way that we normally can. They are still held accountable. The money doesn't come from the government, it comes from that. So he is able to take this very complex story that happened over the course of decades and get it to a couple of talking points that are never unpacked by the yeah. people who are talking to him and that is the real issue with these sorts of statements that he that he puts forward.
0: Yeah, out of respect for time I'm just going to do one more, but I think that's a huge <laughs> point. He talks about how vaccine companies are now immune from prosecution and it's like, well, yes, in a very narrow sense of how you want to look at it, but the truth is yes. there's a whole fund set up to compensate people for vaccine injury um but there was too much risk associated with not letting vaccines into the world if people just kept suing because just because you sue doesn't mean you have a claim it just means you're suing and there's a big difference between that yes. this is the other one I want to talk about because it kind of goes out to the thousand foot level yes. I said Kennedy also says that none of the recommended childhood vaccines have been put through double blind placebo controlled studies before being licensed what is the evidence for this claim now, this is really interesting, and I should have known this, but I had, I had to have ChatGPT remind me of this. So I'll read the response. The claim that none of the recommended childhood vaccines have been put through double-blind placebo-controlled studies before being licensed is incorrect. All vaccines approved for use in the United States, for instance, have to go undergo extensive testing, including preclinical trials, followed by three phases of clinical trials. These clinical trials typically involve thousands of participants. Phase three trials in particular are usually randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled studies. This means that participants are randomly assigned to receive either vaccine or placebo, and neither the participants nor the researchers know who received which one. This is the gold standard for clinical trials intended to ensure objective results. After a vaccine is licensed, it's continued to be monitored, et cetera. This is the important part. There can be ethical considerations around the use of placebos in sub vaccine trials, particularly for vaccines intended to prevent serious or life-threatening diseases, or when an effective vaccine already exists. In such cases, it may be deemed unethical to withhold a vaccine known to prevent disease. And so the new vaccine might be compared to an existing vaccine instead of placebo. However, the key point remains, vaccines do undergo rigorous testing for safety and efficacy. And I think the important point here, and this is the thing I should have known, is like the phase three trial, happens to show that the vaccine is effective in doing what it says it does. It's already passed the safety trials by that point. So it doesn't need to be double-blind placebo to know it's safe. That's already been established. Double-blind placebo is only relevant for showing efficacy, which is different. And it sounds like most of them have undergone that. But in some cases, they don't always because some some other ethical considerations. Does that accord with your understanding of that one as well?
1: Oh, absolutely. And I'll point listeners to Dan Wilson's YouTube channel. Dan Wilson is a doctor that we have on the podcast, I think, four times now. He goes by Debunk the Funk. And he created a 45-minute video on, on YouTube debunking all of these points that Kennedy made on Rogan specifically. And he oh, just wow, goes okay. down and he sh- he shows you the studies on the screen. He's a very good science communicator. But again, you see the problem. What, what we just had to... Unpack over a couple of minutes is said by a sentence by Kennedy, and then Dan Wilson will take it 40 minutes to explain it to people. Yeah. But in this environment, that's the problem is that, you know, if you're actually interested in learning, then there's plenty of resources to do that. But at the speed at which Twitter moves, it's impossible to unpack those things. But what you said is absolutely true.
0: So there you go this is just a very long very enjoyable conversation very informative for a lot of things that i i wasn't aware of beforehand that keep an open mind but be skeptical (laughs) test assumptions look into things understand where it comes from validate uh, and and satisfy yourselves as to the facts because often if you don't pay attention them to them uh, you can either get screwed out of some money find yourself proselytizing on 9-11 for people to save the world when people just need homes, or you put yourself and your family in danger because you don't get vaccines that can stop the spread of disease. So that's uh, that's the summary of this conversation. Derek, I want to be very mindful of your time. I want to thank you for the work you're doing. I want to thank you for publishing the book. I want to thank you, I want to thank you for the abuse you take on Twitter and online <laughs> from all the people who don't want to hear things that they don't want to hear. Uh, I think it's important work, and, and I'm grateful for it.
1: Thank you, Ronan. I really appreciate talking to you and following you and hearing everything you have going on too. So thanks for thanks for chatting.
0: My pleasure. Thanks for coming on.